The B-Rad Podcast is brought to you by MoFo, male optimization formula with organs to boost testosterone. Brad's Macadamia Masterpiece, mind-blowing nut butter blend. Chili Pad, temperature-controlled mattress systems. Inside Tracker, blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data all in one. And New Optimal, three nootropic supplements designed to improve focus, memory, and drive. And check out the bradkerns.com shop page, my personal selection of favorite products with great discounts for health, fitness, and peak performance. Certain products were like borderline on heavy metals, whereas others were just basically non-detectable. So you want, you want, you know, a certificate of analysis that does the complete analysis of, of that Athletes will use ketones much quicker than like a sedentary person and probably get more benefits too because an athlete uh, experiences something called post-exercise ketosis. So they are essentially fat adapted. They intermittently go into a state of ketosis. I've learned to just accept this diet, not only study it in my research, but actually transition to actually following the very thing that I'm studying myself. Hey listeners, I want to tell you a true story about the super awesome Paleo Valley Superfood Bars. And I can't believe I'm promoting an energy bar because I literally took a 17-year break or so from eating a single bar. That's because I've eaten plenty in my day. Back when I was a triathlete, I was sponsored by the original big-name bar makers, and I used them for so many years on long bike rides and then leaking into my life as a daily habit. But guess what? Most energy bars, even today as we evolve and have better product selection in, in so many ways, most energy bars contain as much sugar as a candy bar, and even the high-protein bars have lots of sugar and usually an inferior quality protein. Paleo Valley bars, on the other hand, are free from added sugar or processed sugar and have an assortment of bonus ingredients like grass-fed beef bone broth protein for your collagen needs, a blend of nutritious plant-based ingredients like pumpkin seed, kale, broccoli, spinach, blueberries, spirulina, cherry, turmeric, ginger, Himalayan pink salt, and very importantly, the product is cold-processed. It's hard to use the word superfood unless it's deserved, and it really is deserved with this product. I get a distinct sensation of feeling satisfied and nourished after eating a Paleo Valley bar, and it lasts for hours. And let me tell you, these bars are the real deal. They've been rigorously taste-tested by Brad Kearns himself on my epic 22-mile Cactus to Clouds hike back in October, where I ate five bars in a single day while hiking the single most difficult hiking trail in the United States in Palm Springs. Paleo Valley superfood bars actually taste great all day long because they're not overly sweet and they're filled with those healthful ingredients that give you true satisfaction. Hey, go try some out. What do you have to lose? Paleovalley.com. Take that 15% discount with the code BRAD15. Hey, listeners, get ready for a very heavy hitting and deeply educational show with Dr. Dom D'Agostino. This guy is something else. He's an all-around man, and he is widely regarded as one of the world's 
foremost researchers on the ketogenic diet and especially ketone supplements for neuroprotection. He has been working with the Navy SEALs for over a decade, one of the earliest researchers on the various use of ketone supplements, uh, especially in the Navy SEAL program where they were having problems with oxygen toxicity seizures among Navy SEAL divers using rebreathers. Rebreathers are the devices that prevent the bubbles from rising to the surface when you're scuba diving. And it's very important for the SEALs to be able to sneak up on their enemy target underwater without uh, revealing themselves with the uh, bubbles rising to the surface. And amazingly so, this is how the crazy ketogenic diet craze emerged. That's right, from research on crazy stuff like this. And Dom was right there at the at the epicenter years ago. He was tremendously helpful to Mark Sisson and I when we were doing our initial research to write the Keto Reset Diet book that was published back in 2017. And he spent a lot of time with me on the phone. Uh, I remember the interview distinctly because he said, I don't know, so many times that I finally, uh, you know, burst out laughing. And I'm like, dude, that seems to be your favorite answer. And he said, oh, yes. He said, uh, beware of people who speak in definitives and you'll notice a real scientist by the number of times they offer up answers such as, I don't know, maybe, things like that. And that was a great education for me and kind of recalibrated my awareness when I'm getting hit with expert information from YouTube or on podcasts and people convincing you, pointing their finger at the camera saying, this is the way it is. So it's nice to reflect on how a real scientist will have that open mind and that willingness to uh, reevaluate their positions rather than speak in strong, powerful definitives. So officially, Dom is a research scientist at the Institute of Human and Machine Cognition and an associate professor at the College of Medicine, Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology at the University of South Florida. On his Twitter account, he calls himself a neuroscientist, believer, self-experimenter, and you're going to hear about some of the crazy stuff he's done to get his blood glucose levels down below measurable levels, uh, experimenting with the potency of ketone supplements, uh, lucky husband, aquanaut, scuba, space, and nutrition enthusiast. And check out his action over at ketonutrition.org. You will find the most respected and thoroughly researched commentary on the ketogenic diet. So we're going to get into it in this show. Uh, there's a lot of science. You might be a little bit overwhelmed by some of his commentary because it's so deep into the science, but I do my best to try to pull out actionable insights and sound bites. And uh, you may have heard of keto and how you uh, eat fewer carbs and lose weight, uh, but you're also going to get a basic education on the amazing and wide-ranging benefits of ketones in the body, uh, particularly how they are a cleaner burning fuel source than glucose that reduce free radical production when they're burned, especially in the brain, which is so sensitive to free radicals. And that's why the ketogenic diet has been used for over a hundred years in patients with epilepsy, because when they're in ketosis, it raises the 
oxygen threshold for seizures in the brain. The brain is getting better oxygen delivery, better blood circulation, and is protective against, just like with the Navy SEAL divers, protecting against oxygen toxicity when they're rebreathing. Um, someone with epilepsy has a, a greater protective benefits when they're adhering to the ketogenic diet or taking these ketone supplements, which have been invented in recent years. And Dom describes the difference between the ketone salts that we see commercially available and ketone esters, which are much less common, uh, but they're more potent. They can rise your blood ketone levels extremely in a short time. And then we kind of uh, cover the important stuff uh, of great interest to the broad audience, which is the ketogenic diet for weight loss. And this is an important soundbite I'll tee you up with uh, that Dom describes how the effectiveness of the ketogenic diet is that it causes an inadvertent mild calorie restriction due to appetite suppression and a restriction of choice in food. So all of a sudden, you are now counting your carbohydrates, trying to keep them under 50 grams a day per the ketogenic guidelines. And so you're going to have an automatic improvement in the quality of your diet and a reduction in caloric intake because you're cutting out a lot of the popular junk that we would otherwise throw in there when we're unregulated. And I think that's an important distinction between uh, any sort of magic that you're going to raise your metabolism or things like that, which are hotly disputed. Uh, you listen to my show with Dr. Herman Ponser, where we got into that in detail. And so a little bit of that uh, kind of absorbs into this show, too. Uh, but when you do make this effort, you can expect uh, some wide ranging benefits besides the automatic reduction in caloric intake and the improvement in fat burning. And that's why uh, Mark and I called the keto diet a bucket list item for everyone uh, in the Keto Reset Diet and in other books. So if you go to the trouble to uh, engage in intermittent fasting, uh, carbohydrate restriction, even if it's for a short duration, even if it's for, for a six-week binge, you're going to have all these benefits that, as Dr. D'Agostino describes, will stay in place even if you transition away from this uh, strict adherence to the ketogenic macronutrient guidelines. We also talk a bit about uh, the application of the diet to athletes, where I ask him some of my questions and mysteries that I experienced when I was uh, deep into this research and experimenting with the ketogenic diet myself and putting up some low numbers on my blood meter, even though I thought I was going to be, uh, you know, skyrocketing because I'd fasted so long and had a string of ketogenic meals and done a hard workout and how maybe there's too many stress factors in play there. And so Dom himself talks about how he enjoys a a significant amount of carbohydrates in the evening, which helps him recover from his extreme high-performing workouts. And wait till you hear what he did after a seven-day fast, not eating any calories, and then stepping up to the deadlift bar and performing this magnificent human feat that I think we can uh, track down a video or more details in the show notes. Okay. Uh, I think that's enough tea up. So here we go with Dr. Dom D'Agostino coming to us from his new home on the farm out there in South Florida. Enjoy. Dr. Dom D'Agostino, I'm so glad to connect with you again. We are now, what was that, five 
maybe more than five years ago when I talked to you on the phone to find out about what this whole ketogenic diet thing was. Now you're sitting back in your in your in your chair in the lab at the University of South Florida and uh, have watched it turn into a sensation. So I think part of this show we're going to have to set some things straight because uh, some of it's gotten out of hand. I'm I'm sure you uh, have some things to shake your head about, but you've been doing great research for so long. So maybe the first thing we should start with is uh, you could tell us about the work that you've been doing for the past decade and longer, and then. Um, um, what is this uh, ketogenic diet and some of the amazing metabolic benefits that you and the other researchers have discovered? Yeah, glad to fill you in on that. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me, Brad. Appreciate it. So it was uh, about in about 2007 or eight, I became interested in the ketogenic diet for our work that was funded by the Department of Defense and specifically the Office of Navy Research, which is a component of the Department of Defense. And my role is looking at mitigation strategies for oxygen toxicity seizures, which is a limitation for Navy SEAL divers using a closed circuit rebreather. So uh, we developed some unique technologies like microscopes inside hyperbaric chambers, environmental chambers, and allowed us to look at look at the effects of metabolism on brain cells. And um, I was looking at a variety of different things and ketones were a side project that I had because I found out the ketogenic diets used for epilepsy and other seizure disorders. So I thought, you know, maybe it would be good to try it for this. Uh, long story short, we, we, the military, I would say, looked at a lot of different drugs and we looked at various drugs and nothing really came close to nutritional ketosis. And then later we developed exogenous ketones and they became very effective tools for neuroprotection in the context of oxygen toxicity seizures. So that was like over 10 years ago. And now we've branched off into looking at things like cancer, things like uh, rare metabolic diseases, uh, wound healing, uh, glycemic control, lowering blood glucose, and then exercise performance. So uh, we're looking at nutritional ketosis in the context of not only disease processes, but really enhancing and preserving metabolic resilience in extreme environments. And that's kind of, if I had to describe you know, the thrust of what I do, it's really preserving safety and performance resilience in these extreme environments. So it all started, the impetus was these Navy SEAL divers were having real trouble using the rebreather. Uh, maybe you can describe what that is. And mm -hmm. the ketones came in because uh, as a soundbite, they improve oxygen delivery to the brain. So they kind of make it less difficult to uh, to struggle. Uh, same with the, um, the epileptic Caesar patients that have been using the diet for over a hundred years, right? Yeah, there, there's a lot kind of going on with nutritional ketosis and I'll kind of sum it up. So oxygen in the air that we breathe is at 20%, but a closed circuit rebreather, like a dragger rebreather is actually a completely closed circuit. And uh, to avert the enemy uh, seeing you in the water for stealth mode, there are no bubbles when you're swimming underwater. So if you can envision swimming across the lake 
to, you know, sneak up on the en enemy, plan a mine, you know, attack a ship, something like that. Uh, you won't see the enemy coming if they're uh, wearing a closed circuit rebreather. I'm looking out over my pond right now and I can track alligators. I see the bubble trail going across and it just came to mind. Uh, I was out on my paddle, uh, stand up paddleboard yesterday and I was watching bubbles come to me and the alligator was coming to me across. Uh, he's just a small alligator, so I wasn't afraid, <laughs> but it's kind of like the same scenario, right? So no bubbles, there's a stealth component. The disadvantage of using a closed circuit rebreather is that uh, if you go down to just 50 feet of seawater, within 10 to 15 minutes, according to the Navy dive tables, you can have oxygen toxicity. So the rebreathers are typically used not for deep diving, but for stealth operations, just you know, 10, 15, 20 feet below. But if the water has high visibility and is very clear, and you have an overhead like a helicopter or something like that, you got to dive down deeper to get out of sight, right? So, so that's that's a limitation. Having a seizure underwater, it's not very good for the mission. <laughs> so, uh, we don't at this current time. Well, at the time I was researching it, we didn't know how to predict or how to mitigate oxygen toxicity seizures. We're looking at physiological biomarkers like. Uh, you know, EEG on the brain and things like that. That's a little bit hard that we can do that in the lab, but out in the field, that's hard, but you can wear a monitor and look at things like, um, heart rate variability. You can look at, you know, breathing patterns. You can look at, uh, body temperature too tends to dip, uh, and breathing be kind of becomes erratic before you have a seizure. So we're looking at physiological biomarkers. We're looking at biochemical biomarkers, and that's a whole nother aspect of what I do. But the main thrust of what I do is preventing these seizures from happening in the first place. And the ketogenic diet had a super track record. I, I, I went through a nutrition program in my undergrad at Rutgers University and kind of studied nutrition and knew about keto diets and low carb diets. But I did not know that they had a hundred year history of being used as a medical therapy for epilepsy. So I thought it would be pretty cool. I did my PhD in uh, neuroscience and physiology. I thought it would be cool if I could get nutrition science back into my research program. And essentially, that's what I did, you know, uh, about 12, 13 years ago and started looking at uh, different metabolites and altering our metabolic physiology to change our brain energy metabolism. So that's really what happens with a ketogenic diet is that you're switching a fuel source. It's not like you're switching totally from glucose to ketones, but when you elevate ketones in the blood, by virtue of the metabolic processes that happen, you're also lowering blood glucose, elevating ketones, and that actually changes the brain energy systems. Uh, and then ketones have anti-inflammatory effects, they affect different signaling molecules and also uh, neurotransmitters. So they lower glutamate and they elevate GABA. And there are, it's multifactorial. The effects of ketones are not just in energy and they do play a role in oxygen too, but they don't decrease the oxygen or increase the oxygen in the brain. They increase brain blood flow. Uh, but what they do, and this was the first observation of ketones, is that they reduce oxygen-free radicals, which are also called reactive oxygen species. So this was the first observation underneath a microscope 
where I developed a technique in hippocampal brain slices, the hippocampus is, we think, where the seizures start, uh, to reduce superoxide anion. And in the context of high oxygen, you see a big burst of reactive oxygen species. But if you have ketones, you know, in the media, then are in the solution that the brain cells are in, uh, there's a much less uh, elevation of reactive oxygen species. So this was the first observation, and it was indicative of enhanced mitochondrial function. So essentially what we saw was the preservation of mitochondrial activity and metabolic processes in the context when metabolism typically shuts down and the cell dies. So the cells were able to stay alive and the mitochondria were working with high efficiency as evidence, you know, by reduced superoxide anion. So that kicked off this whole idea of, hey, how do we implement the ketogenic diet? The military was not very keen in, you know, using a high fat ketogenic diet. So uh, we worked on delivering, developing, testing, and ultimately delivering uh, a ketogenic supplement in the form of ketone esters and ketone salts, which we're really focusing on now. And even things like MCT, which is added to the, the, the formulations that we're working on. Wow. <laughs> so if you're a, uh, a science student taking notes now, we've pulled out some, some tidbits that are extremely uh, important and applicable to everyone. If you can get your mitochondria functioning better, if you can produce less reactive oxygen species, especially in the brain, we're talking about sailing down the, the path of life with a minimized risk of uh, cognitive decline, dementia, Alzheimer's, um, everyday, better for focus, mental clarity, all those kind of things. So this must have been exciting when you uh, kind of move through the path of trying to help the uh, the divers sneak up on the ships and plant a bomb to, hey, this could be uh, you know a life-changing thing, especially in the realm of disease and, and of course, also in peak performance. And we'll talk about weight loss shortly, but um, it seemed like you were kind of peeling this onion off and probably getting more and more excited in the lab over the over the decade plus that this stuff was coming out. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty good observation and and summary of of the effects. You know, it does have implications for things like Alzheimer's. And actually, the 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 military that was a bit of a hard pitch to get them to buy into this idea of therapeutic ketosis because ketones had there was a lot of negative connotations associated with being in ketosis because of diabetic ketoacidosis. Uh, but the I had colleagues at the Bird Alzheimer's Institute, which is on the University of South Florida campus, and the Alzheimer's uh, Association actually funded a project looking at ketogenesis for preventing uh, as a therapy for Alzheimer's disease. So the, we had a PhD student, uh, Milene Brownlow, uh, who has kind of moved on and, and doing some really cool things now, but she did her PhD project looking at the, the effects of ketogenic diets on Alzheimer's disease model. And uh, probably the most interesting data that came out of that research funded by the Alzheimer's Association was that these animals had remarkably uh, enhanced motor function and exercise performance. When we put them on a treadmill-like device called a rotor rod, which is like a little wheel that they run on, 
but they not only have to keep up with the speed of the wheel, they also have to maintain their balance. And the data, when you look at the data, you didn't even need statistics to sort of say, wow, the the you know the performance was was much higher in the, the Alzheimer's uh, disease model. We we implemented nutritional ketosis in the Alzheimer's model after they got significant disease processes. So we were not able to reverse the amyloid and the tau because that has already started, but other labs implemented uh, nutritional ketosis earlier and saw that they could delay the accumulation of the, the two proteins that are implicated in the etiology of Alzheimer's disease, which is the amyloid beta uh, toxic protein and the tau protein. Uh, we didn't actually see that in our studies because we started a little bit later, but we did see the the phenotype of the animal was remarkably changed in that it was it was much more robust energetically from a motor performance point of view. So that was really refreshing because my research with the Navy was just starting up and it was like, you have something that undoubtedly can prevent seizures and is neuroprotective, but you have something that could potentially also enhance performance. So then it became even more interesting in applying uh, nutritional ketosis to diseases of motor function. So like ALS, and you know we're working with a wide variety of different diseases where uh, impairment of motor function is part of the symptom of the disease. And we're conducting you know research on that now. Uh, you you mentioned sub comment about it's it's not all or nothing here. So we're not like switching into this realm of being a ketone burning machine and departing forever from uh, the, the baseline of you know today we're burning uh, mostly glucose in the brain because of our diets. Uh, but you're making a transition where you're uh, becoming, I guess, predominant in ketones if you're really serious about it and, and strict on the diet versus. Are we more or less uh, almost entirely burning glucose unless we do some dietary modification? Yeah, that's a really good point because pretty much everything I see out there when people are pitching the ketogenic diet or <laughs> ketones is that Shark Tank, you, hey. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. That you're switching, you know, a hundred percent from glucose to ketones. If you eat zero sugar and zero carbohydrates, your glucose does not drop to zero. So that's like really, and when you fast for even 40 days, like your glucose does not drop to zero. There are very powerful homeostatic mechanisms that maintain blood glucose within very tight regulation in a normal healthy person between say three millimolar, which is down to like maybe 60-ish to like 100. Uh, milligrams per deciliter. And it's very rare in a fasting state to be outside of that. Uh, although with, with a really strict ketogenic diet or fasting, you can dip down into the 40s and 50s, maybe even occasionally into the 30s with really long fasts. But, uh, and in, in that context, with a low glucose, the ketones are elevated and they are supplying an alternative energy substrate to the brain. So you are, and what's super interesting in a whole nother field of study is that in the case of insulin shock or type one diabetes uh, or hypoglycemia, subjects who uh, undergo prolonged fasting, if you inject them with insulin to drop 
glucose down into a level that would be universally fatal, they are asymptomatic for hypoglycemia and they don't go into a seizure, they don't go into a coma. Uh, these are studies done by George Cahill at uh, Harvard Medical School. Uh, the fellow in the lab at the time was Dr. Uh, Oliver uh, Owen. Um, and this study was published in, in 1967, really caught my attention. And <laughs> I almost didn't believe it because uh, it, it contrasted a lot of things that I thought I knew about the brain. And it, it sparked a, a big interest to me that if this was real, then the brain can run on this alternative energy uh, fuel. And it, it, the implications were pretty remarkable that you could provide alternative energy you know, for Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, ALS, MS, uh, a wide range of metabolic disorders that some of them we study, including glucose transporter type 1 deficiency syndrome, that's a mouthful, uh, pyruvate dehydrogenase deficiency syndrome. So actually in those two cases, the ketogenic diet is the standard of care. And without it, the, you know, the patients would die. So actually, they need to maintain a certain level of ketones to stay alive and to function and to prevent seizures and things like that. So I was looking at more of the broader implications of all these things that people were not studying. And uh, there seemed to be a pretty good scientific rationale for expanding it beyond the use of epilepsy. And that has become you know, the major motivation behind what I do, but not what I do per se, because I oversee the research, but what my students do, because they're really the PhD students, the med students. I have undergrads. I even have high school students. They're in the trenches doing the research, and they're really excited about this research. And we're publishing, and we're getting the information out there. So it's been uh, a real whirlwind trip <laughs> uh, going down this path, and it's been very exciting for me and for the people in the lab. Uh, so you mentioned this Cahill study from Harvard back in the 60s, and I know it was highly regarded, one reason being that it's very difficult to replicate because the people were basically starving for a long time. And so we can go yeah. look back, but we can't be doing this left and right because of the rules now. Uh, but you've kind of taken it deep yourself. Uh, I, I heard you mention some of, some of your personal experimentation. So um, let, let's focus on that a little bit about how how difficult it is to study things like um, how the body does in starvation or extreme carbohydrate calorie restriction, and then some of the stuff that you pulled out from from messing around. Yeah, I you know, I like to immerse myself in the research that I'm doing, and uh, and that typically involves you know fasting, ketogenic diets, and exogenous ketones and calorie restriction, and you know all of the above. Uh, so. You know, I come to find out like you, you can't even do a fasting study where you're injecting insulin in a fasted state uh, to animals. Although, you know, back oh. in 1967, if, you know, you had a, a institutional review board and an influential, uh, you know, professor, you could get this passed, presumably, you know, for a human study. Uh, but in our lab, what we observe is that if you implement a ketogenic diet, you inadvertently usually produce a state of mild calorie restriction. So that further sort of enhances in, in rodents, 
mice and rats. And if you feed them, you know, rodent chow, they like humans, they basically overeat and then they gain weight as they get older and they become insulin resistant and they just, you know, they put on adiposity, uh, intraomental fat, which contribute to metabolic syndrome and things like that. So some of the first observations were that a mild calorie restriction also enhanced like performance and you had saw like a lot of benefits from that. But, uh, and we saw benefit even in the context of cancer with mild calorie restriction. But if you calorie restrict a ketogenic diet, then your ketones are elevated and that provides further benefits above and beyond what you'd get from just calorie restriction. I would like you to know this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Therapy is a safe place to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. I have benefited extensively from online therapy. Some experts contend that you can be more vulnerable than you might be in person. What I value the most is actionable insights and specific honest feedback. I don't need someone just listening to me. I want to get some practical tips and I can definitely get that from a remote therapist. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, maybe you're hesitant to drive across town and go into some building, why don't you give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire, and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge, because getting the best fit and the most comfortable connection is very important. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash bradpod, B-R-A-D-P-O-D. That's betterhelp.com slash bradpod today to get 10% off your first month. Again, betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash bradpod and get on your way to being your best self. And we know, like a lot of people will say, well, the ketogenic diet works for weight loss and other things simply because you're, it's all about calories in, calories out. We know from the context of epilepsy research that a lot more is happening with the ketogenic diet than just calorie restriction, right? Because it's changing the brain energy metabolism and preventing seizure. And calorie restriction alone does not do that. Fasting will, but you have to take it to extremes to control seizures. A mm-hmm. well-formulated medical ketogenic diet can control seizures equally or as good as fasting. So, uh, so in our lab, you know, we, we did a variety of things. We developed ketone esters and there's a variety of different ketone molecules we could talk about. And then I also became interested in this idea, like you could take a ketone molecule and combine it with an electrolyte like sodium and potassium and magnesium and you know, calcium, why don't we develop a balanced electrolyte formulation, you know, similar to electrolyte products that are on the market, but instead of combining the electrolyte with like chloride, like sodium chloride, we do sodium beta hydroxybutyrate or magnesium beta hydroxybutyrate. So I kind of had this idea, nobody was doing it. And I had a chemist that was very good uh, outside of academia, which is a good thing in many ways, because academia is very, very slow Mm -hmm. when it comes to exploratory science and getting things off the ground and running. 
So we were able to, you know, develop these ketone molecules that were like new entities. And I started testing them on myself. And I realized that I could be in a very low hypoglycemic state and would be in a fasting. You know, I can produce that state through a variety of ways. Maybe some I will not discuss. But what I observed (laughs) is that... Uh, that I could produce, you know, a state of hypoglycemia that would typically put someone into a coma. But if my ketones were elevated, I was not only, you know, not only asymptomatic for hypoglycemia, I felt very lucid and cognitively sharp. So then, you know, we weren't actually doing funding funded research at the time, but I totally bought into this idea which is come, you know, proven to be true that if you do elevate ketones, it provides a remarkable energetic boost to the brain. And this has tremendous implications for disease processes. Yes. But I think also for the everyday person looking to get sort of an edge in regard to cognitive function, preserving, you know, metabolic resilience, um, there's a lot of things that happen when you're doing things like intermittent fasting and the ketogenic diet, you're shifting your metabolism over to burning fat and ketones. But what we discovered is that if you administer exogenous ketones, my thinking was that you had to first convert your metabolism over and you had to fast for a period of time or or use a ketogenic diet to get the benefits of ketones. But this was not the case because we took rats that were eating a standard high carbohydrate diet and we administered a ketone ester for our first study that we published. And uh, they were completely naive to ketones or the ketogenic diet. And then we put them inside the hyperbaric chamber. We pressurized it to five atmospheres of oxygen, which produces a seizure within five minutes. And I remember the first rat, we're all standing around the chamber. There's a little window poured in there and we have a camera set up and we're also pulling 14 channels of data off the rat because they have biosensors on on the rat and on the brain too. And an hour goes by and we're staring at the rat, you know, in the chamber and it's grooming itself. It's acting like normal. And, you know, we had never seen that before. So we're thinking, you know, this could be a little bit of a backstory. We actually tested a few different ketogenic molecules that didn't have an effect, but then we developed uh, a particular ketone ester that elevated acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate in a one-to-one combination. And then that particular entity became very anti-convulsant neuroprotective. So, um, you know, w- we administered this and we did another animal and another animal, and another animal, and saw the same thing every time. And, uh, and then we'd wash out the molecule and then we administer water as a control and then have a seizure in like five minutes. And, you know, but when they're in a state of ketosis, you know, there was a, almost a 600% increase in their resilience to this extreme environment where all of those rats would have been dead a long time ago, uh, if they were not in a state of ketosis. So, and that was about, you know, 2010, we, we observed this and then that, kicked off a whole series of different, you know, experiments and, and collaborations, um, and new molecules, other, other investigators jumped on this opportunity, uh, a variety of different companies jumped on the opportunity, started developing different ketone supplements and things like that. But, uh, I think it was those observations and then speaking about it on different podcasts and stuff that sparked a lot of interest. 
I want to tell you about Inside Tracker, an awesome new ultra personalized nutrition and lifestyle program that combines data from your comprehensive blood panels, genetic test results, and lifestyle and fitness data from a Fitbit, for example, and organizes everything into one super cool online portal of your personal health. I am just getting going with this, and it's awesome. It has everything in one spot. For every blood result, you can click on a blog post or watch a video to learn more about these values. It's a great education in general health and self-quantification, and it was developed by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometric data from MIT, Tufts, and Harvard. The patented Inside Tracker algorithm calculates your so-called inner age, and it shows each biomarker as either optimized, needs to improve, or at risk. And then you can take precise corrective action with a science-backed plan to reach your performance goals. Oh, mercy, people. On my first round of testing, guess what my inner age was? 62! Shocker! Because I just turned 56. I'm sorry. You know what? When I delivered that blood test, I believe I was a little overtired, and several of my biomarkers were deemed to be subpar. So I made some changes as directed. I recovered better, rested, went back, and delivered way better numbers at the next blood test. The Insight Tracker motto is change is an inside job and that is for real you got to keep tabs on this stuff to be at your best and they have an amazing deal just for brad podcast listeners they are going to give away a grand prize of fifteen hundred dollars in inside tracker value so to enter all you have to do is go to insidetracker.com slash Brad Pod, B R A D P O D. Check it out right now at the link and enter the contest. So you can get into a state of ketosis and advanced ketosis, as seen by the the Cahill study, by starving for a long period of time or taking carbs down to extremely low. Uh, you've heard people talk about under fifty grams a day, which by most accounts is really low. And uh, you can work hard and get there, or um, you can consume these supplements and immediately uh, experience the benefits like you were discussing with the rat. Yep. Yeah, that, that's the case. You know, I was a little bit, um, I was skeptical that this would happen. And uh, the original protocol that I wanted to do was to put the animals on ex- exogenous ketones for like a week. But we were not able to synthesize enough of it to like, you know, do the original. So I jumped the gun, so to speak, and was like, well, let's just let's just give one dose and put put the ketones into that five millimolar range and then put the rat in the chamber and see what see what happens. Um, And, you know, I did I did this with a beta hydroxybutyrate ester and, and other molecules and uh and didn't see an effect including one three butane diol which breaks down to ketones we actually the molecule that was most neuroprotective was one three butane diol acetoacetate diester if you want the chemical name uh but now we've used a variety of different molecules um we do find that when we combine that molecule with mct oil there's a further boost in the uh, in the neuroprotective effects and it also more the oil delays the gastric absorption in a way that extends the pharmacokinetic profile in pharmacology. We say it shifts it to the right, right? So 
there's an elevation of ketones and then that elevation is preserved over hours instead of just like an hour and a half or so. So you get many hours of that. So there's different formulations that we use to that would basically the formulation when it's administered just prior to emission would give neuroprotection over a period of hours uh, and, and safety and resilience over a period of hours. So, yeah, we, um, I kind of, I talked with the late Dr. Beach and Dr. George Cahill and Dr. Theodore Van Italy. All these people were icons, remain to remain icons in the field of fasting, in the field of ketogenic diets. And Dr. Veach was really the one who was developing and testing ketone esters, you know, before I even got into this field. So I like to give credit to him. And uh, Dr. Richard Veach actually worked under uh, Hans Krebs, the Krebs cycle. So he was a, a student of Hans Krebs, very knowledgeable. Uh, and there's also a, a remarkable individual, uh, Henri Brunengraber at Case Western. And he actually gave me the recipe to synthesize the other ketone ester that we ended up testing and being most efficacious. So, so these ideas, you know, people say I'm the keto king and I developed these things, but it was really other people and consulting <laughs> with other people. And many of them were very generous with their time on the phone. Uh, I've met with many of them in different, you know, meetings and things like that. Uh, and it's a good thing I did at the time because many of them, you know, are, are not here now. So they're kind of up in their age, but they did this research like years ago and no one really picked up and followed up on it in a very robust way <laughs> that, and I was thinking, and I think because ketones had a negative stigma to it, but if you just look at the physiology and nowadays, a lot of people focus on nutritional biochemistry, but the people in nutrition nowadays, and I don't want to make a blanket statement, they may not have an appreciation for metabolic physiology. So physiology is really integrating it all instead of medical, like with nutritional biochemistry, it's like, you know, knowing the pathways of vitamin K synthesis, certain things like, so, but with nutritional physiology, you really understand what's going on. So uh, that my physiology background gave me an appreciation for the work that these icons did. And it's like, someone's got to follow up on it. And I was like, my department is a physiology pharmacology. So it was a, a little bit, people were thinking it was academic suicide to <laughs> transition mm -hmm. from drug research to, um, to uh, you know, nutritional high-fat diet research. So there's some some eyebrows were raised and saying this is not a very good field to go into if you want to get tenure at a medical Whoa. college. I want to discuss the incredible benefits of red light therapy and how you can get started with Mito Red Light. Mito, like mitochondria, red light makes the premier light therapy devices in the world and at incredibly affordable prices. I stand in front of my Mito Pro 1500 unit every morning, carefully exposing my eyeballs, other important balls, and my entire body to special wavelengths of red and near infrared 
time for red light. When I tell people about my daily devotion to red light therapy, they typically ask, does this stuff really work? And the answer is yes. And there are thousands of studies supporting its effectiveness. Here's how. It's called photobiomodulation where specific wavelengths of red and near-infrared light, red's visible, near-infrared is not visible, that's why it looks like only half of your panel's working, these wavelengths help mitochondria in cells throughout your body produce more energy and clear waste products more efficiently. Red light exposure helps mobilize nitric oxide trapped in the mitochondria and allows oxygen to return to the cell and increase ATP production. The benefits are proven again and again for skin health, muscle recovery, joint pain, and numerous inflammatory conditions. Red light therapy is also beneficial for circadian rhythm alignment because we generally get far too little direct sunlight and too much indoor blue light from screens and light bulbs at the wrong times. You don't hear much about this benefit of red light therapy, but when I turn on those lights, first thing in the morning. As soon as I wake up, I walk across the hall, I stand in front of the panels, and I feel instantly awake and energized. And believe me, there's a lot of days where Mr. Health Guy here wakes up feeling a little groggy and a little whiny, like I don't want to right get up now and get into my morning exercise routine. But when I stand in front of the lights, in one minute, I swear I feel wide awake. I get all that grogginess out naturally. It's super powerful, super effective, besides all the healing and the cellular benefits. I also love it for being a natural wake-up machine. You have to try red light therapy. I am certain that you will become a devoted user. And guess what? Mito Red Light offers a 60-day no-risk trial period and a special 5% discount for BRAD podcast listeners. Just visit Mito Red Light, M-I-T-O, redlight.com, and use the code BRAD on any of their products. Go for it today and get started on your red light journey. So, um, so but, but it ended up panning out because I knew it would work because it worked experimentally. And mm-hmm. if something works and the science is good, eventually a funding agency would recognize it and um, support your support my students, you know, to continue doing the research. So the number of people interested in the protective benefits is fewer than those interested in fat loss and all the things that have made keto become this uh, cultural sensation and uh, the latest dietary trend. And I wonder kind of, um, you know, your reflections right now on how these divergent paths have gone. I mean, we're still, uh, you're still doing great work with the, the, the space group and the, the Navy SEALs and all that. And then we're also seeing um, everywhere we look, people uh, slimming up with their ketone pills and their this and that. So um, let's, uh, let's see what you think about all that. Yeah, it's a, I'm glad you brought that up because there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of hype behind the ketogenic diet and claims behind certain supplements. So the large majority of ketone supplements that are out there, like the ones you probably see on Shark Tank and things like that, are so underdosed and we say, what do we say, like fairy dusted with a very small amount of ketones and and we've analyzed some of these things and 
there are things besides ketones in their ketone formulation that are things they can't even identify. So I would say impurities. So they lack potency, they lack purity, and they lack tolerability. So this is like the main problem that I see with ketone supplements out there. Uh, there's really only a few supplements that when people ask me of what I would recommend. Uh, there's a couple companies that are pretty good. Um, most of them are medical, you know, companies uh, m- making it for medical foods that are actually pure, like ketone esters and ketone salts. Audacious Nutrition product Keto Start is, is very good, um, and there's a few others out there that I think are up and coming. But I'd, I'd have to do an analysis of the purity and the potency and things like that. But some of the things that we got sent to the lab that we did, you know, mass spec on, they look kind of scary on and paper because it was spikes in the mass spec of things that shouldn't be there. <laughs> uh, so I think it's really important to uh, if you're if you are going to use ketone supplements and they could be a great adjuvant to the ketogenic diet, they could help one transition into the ketogenic mm. diet. And the ketogenic diet is a great weight loss tool and it's also great for lowering your blood glucose and you know achieving body composition alterations that are favorable in the context of weight loss so we've published that and uh but it's just one tool you know Mm -hmm. that you can use and it doesn't necessarily have to be a clinical ketogenic diet that it's used for epilepsy it just has to have a level of carbohydrate restriction that can produce some of these you know benefits uh, before we go off the supplement topic and then focus in on weight loss, uh, a couple other questions. One of them is how the heck are impurities getting into uh, the product? I mean, the, the manufacturer or the marketer is obviously ordering them from some uh, supply laboratory that you would expect has product standards and they're doing their own mass spectrometry. But is this, I, I know this is heard to be a common problem in the supplement industry. Yeah, well, there's a cutoff for things like heavy metals. And, you know, I found certain certain products were like borderline on heavy metals, whereas others were just basically non-detectable. So you want, you want, you know, a certificate of analysis that does a complete, you know, analysis of, of that. And the synthesis pathways for ketone esters are a bit more involved. So you could have a variety of different solvents and other things in there that we couldn't really identify with the ketone esters. Uh, although you could do, we actually do a very simple distillation. We do, uh, you know, I'll tell you it's 1,3-butanediol and terp-butyl acetate. It's a transesterification, just high heat and high vacuum. And it's basically, there's really not a way to get too many impurities with that way unless you burn it something like that, you overcook it. Uh, but with the ketone salts, impurity, it's very simple chemistry to make ketone salts. And I'm going in the direction of ketone salts now because uh, you can formulate a balanced electrolyte formulation with ketone salts that are tolerable and potent and approaching that of a ketone ester. And the big, big thing is that they taste good. So you can make a ketone salt product that actually tastes like, you know, high C. And, you know, I, I have ketone esters in the lab. I have them at home. You know, I can take whatever I want. But, you know, in, in the beginning, there's like a mystique to it and it's a novel thing. And it's like, whoa, look how high I get my ketones. But for someone who's just using it on a daily basis, it's like blood glucose. Like, you don't, 
you're not trying to achieve a 10 millimolar uh, blood glucose or, you know, uh, 100 and, uh, you know, 60 milligrams per deciliter to have more energy, right? There's a, a point of diminished returns. And the same thing happens with ketones. If your ketones, my experience is I feel best at about 1.5 to maybe two between, I'd say between one and two millimolar. And that's giving your brain a boost. If you look at the physiology between 10 and 20%. So a one millimolar elevation of ketones is about a 10% boost in available brain energy uh, substrate. So, uh, so that, you know, I kind of think about it like that. Whereas if I push it to five millimolar, that becomes a metabolic acidosis that the body has to deal with. So you're actually, the body's working hard to sort of, uh, it's dumping bicarb in the system through the renal pathway. And it's like, you have to compensate for the pH shift when you spike your ketones really high. And, and I think that could be that could be beneficial for someone who has a metabolic disorder like glucose transporter deficiency or epilepsy or things like that. But I actually, you know, we see it can impair performance. Uh, it, it has a negative effect. Uh, whereas if you have a healthy individual um, or even someone who's just like, you know, not so metabolically, you know, enhanced or whatever, staying within that one to two millimolar range. And the good news is that this can be achieved with the ketone supplements that are on the market. You just want to be careful in particular with the ones that you choose. And medium chain triglycerides are a great, uh, MCT oil are great too, because they are a simple molecule found in nature and it's actually getting your body to produce the ketones. But the ideal formulation is like, you know, getting MCT and combining it with the ketone salts uh, although I don't always do that. Sometimes I just take ketone salts like during the day and, uh, and I, I, you know, experience a lot of benefits with that. And we do this in animal models and we do this in, in humans and we see nice benefits from that. So you're doing this for a temporary cognitive boost. And then if the individual's really interested in, in going further, they can adhere to the diet protocols where they're, uh, for quite a bit of time, elevating their ketones into that sweet spot. I mean, the, the cutoff point for actually being uh, ketogenic would be, is it, is it 0.5 millimolars that you're trying to get above to say, okay, now I'm, now I'm getting some, uh, some progress here. Yeah, that's a, clinically, that's the cutoff 0.5 millimolar uh, blood, beta-hydroxybutyrate. And uh, so, you know, it would be difficult to achieve that almost impossible with like a standard American diet, uh, <laughs> unless you have a super early dinner. And then the next day you eat your, your first meal at about 12 noon, and mm. then you'll start to get up towards that if you're exercising or something like that. But, uh, and then the, it's probably important to mention that the ketone salt products come in different forms, right? There's the D enantiomer. So there's like, you know, beta hydroxybutyrate comes in its mirror image. <laughs> there's the L in the D form. And this becomes kind of interesting in that the D beta hydroxybutyrate is the primary ketone molecule that the body makes. We do have uh, an enzyme called a racinase enzyme that can convert the D to the L. Uh, but when you take most ketone supplements, it's a combination of the D and the L form. The L form will eventually gradually transition to the D form. 
so over over time. And I think of the L form as kind of like a time release form of the D. Uh, and also the ketones, the D and the L ketone, uh, L beta hydroxybutyrate provide energy, but D probably has a, a more favorable energetic profile than the L beta hydroxybutyrate. Although the D gets burnt up really quickly for fuel, whereas the L beta hydroxybutyrate sticks around longer because it just gets metabolized a lot slower. But the advantage to that is that it's hitting a lot of the signaling pathways. So the D and the L, for example, suppress the NLRP3 inflammasome. So the important thing is that they have anti-inflammatory properties, both of them, but the L sticks around longer. So it may have greater anti-inflammatory effects. And it also has epigenetic effects that are favorable. So it activates gene pathways that have can provide the body with resistance to oxidative stress. And now we know of something called beta-hydroxybutyrylation. So beta-hydroxybutyrate, the ketone molecule, can directly interact with the histones, which play a role in uh, activating certain uh, genes, the expression of certain genes. And uh, there's scientific rationale that the, the L may be doing that to a greater capacity than the D just because it doesn't get oxidized as fast. So we're interested in that and we're actually looking, you know, doing some experiments to, to look into this. So, um, so I think, so I bring that up because when you measure ketones, you're only measuring the commercial meters on the market only measure the D beta hydroxybutyrate. So if you consume a supplement that's an enantiomeric mix of D and L, and you're getting an elevation of one millimolar, you're actually getting an elevation of two millimolar of ketones because you're only measuring quantitatively the D beta hydroxybutyrate. Hopefully that didn't confuse everybody, but uh, but I think uh, I think that the important thing is that racemic beta hydroxybutyrate as sold as ketone salts are not a bad thing. And I think they may actually be a good thing. And most of our research has actually used the racemic forms and showed some pretty remarkable effects. Uh, so most people are looking to uh, achieve goals like fat reduction, maybe some some peak performance attributes for the extreme athletes and the, the endurance athletes, especially uh, limiting their carbs so they can transition over to increase fat burning as we saw in the faster study and so forth. But for the broad uh, listenership and enthusiast, um, you described the supplements as sort of a, a helper to help you transition over into ketone burning. But in general, we have to go focus on some dietary modification. And let's talk about some of the, the high points of that and then also sort out some of the confusion about, do I have to do this all the time for the rest of my life or for the next six months and not miss a single, uh, not binge on any carb, or can there be some sort of um, intermittent use of the ketogenic diet as a tool for fat reduction and uh, the peripheral benefits? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think what we can say is that to achieve a maximum state of ketosis and keto adaptation, which is shifting your metabolism to oxidizing preferentially more fat and ketones, there has to be a, uh, a reduction in the hormone insulin and a reduction in glucose availability. And that needs to be protracted in a way that augments the liberation of, of fat from adipose tissue 
so when you suppress the hormone insulin, then you elevate things like glucagon and catecholamines, which are things like adrenaline, and that mobilizes more fatty acids for fuel. So your peripheral tissues start using in a very high capacity these fats for fuel. Same thing happens if you're fasting, but you can replicate that with carbohydrate restriction. Uh, the brain, on the other hand, does not use fat very good as an energy source, although it can use medium chain triglycerides that can cross the blood brain barrier. But essentially what happens is that to fill the energetic gap, uh, you have elevated beta oxidation of fatty acids in the liver, and that generates these ketones that spill into the blood. And then the ketones cross the blood brain barrier and maintain uh, high energy in the central nervous system, which is top priority for our physiology. So, so the state that I just explained uh, can happen intermittently or it can happen in a protracted way. The more, the more you stay in a state of ketosis, the more adaptations will be associated with that. So the more you do it, uh, the faster you'll transition, the easier it gets, and probably the more benefits you'll derive from it. Uh, one thing I could say is that in our animal models, and I think this applies to humans, that if you take rats and put them on a ketogenic diet, or you do like intermittent fasting and things like that, and get them in a state of ketosis, and then put them back on a high sugar, high carbohydrate diet uh, for a couple of weeks, and then put them back on a ketogenic diet, they have a, a, a quicker elevation of ketones, something like 30 or 30 to 50% faster. So th there appears to be what I call like a metabolic memory. So if we train our muscles, you know, to get to a certain strength level, for example, on the bench press, you know, and, uh, and it might take like three years to get there. And then we take three months off and we're back to our starting point. It's not going to take another three years to get back to that. So I think we can train our metabolism over time. And this involves an upregulation of um, transporter mechanisms, enzyme mechanisms, and also what I call the ketolytic, you know, enzymes, which are key like enzymes within the mitochondria and the cell that actually, uh, play a role in converting the ketones to energy, ATP, our energy currency. All these things are elevated when we're on a ketogenic diet. And then there are certain gene pathways that need to kick on and signaling pathways. There there are many things we don't understand, but what we do have an appreciation for now is that when you do it and you maintain its state of ketosis and then get out of ketosis, you can get back into ketosis much quicker if you've been there before. And, and I think that's really important. Oh my you gosh. Know, I, I remember uh, using the term uh, bucket list in our book, The Keto Reset Diet, Mark Sisson and I, and you were so helpful with uh, getting us uh, teed up to to, to plunge into the subject back in 2017. Uh, but yep. uh, we described it as a, as a bucket list objective. So everybody at least try to, you know, do some dietary restriction and see, see if you can upregulate fat burning, even if it's for uh, a, a short duration, or you kind of uh, trend a little higher than the ketogenic cutoff, but yeah, you're fine tuning your fat burning mechanisms and yeah. it's a wonderful experience. I should ask you, you know, I, I went deep into this doing the book research and was tracking my blood ketones every day. I was getting scar tissue mm -hmm. on some of my fingers and writing down all the numbers and, and seeing how it related to uh, doing workouts, uh, periods of fasting, uh, the, the carbohydrate content of the meals. And uh, I think it was after, after a while, 
um, I wasn't getting the, the, the blood ketone values were, were sort of dropping and it was difficult mm-hmm. for me to even get past that 0.5 millimolar cutoff, even though maybe you can correct me or say, Hey, something was off with your approach. But even though I was saying going on an 18 hour fast having a couple, a string of ketogenic aligned meals, and then testing my blood the following day, thinking I was going to break records. And there it was at 0.6 or 0.4 or something. I'm going, man, what does the guy got to do to, to put up some numbers here? Yeah. Yeah. Another really good topic you bring up. So the blood levels of ketones are a function of ketone production and ketone utilization. So what we do see, uh, and this actually, uh, Dr. Veach told me this like a long, long time ago, like well over a decade ago, uh, that athletes will use ketones much quicker than like a sedentary person and probably get more benefits too, because an athlete uh, experiences something called post-exercise ketosis. So they are essentially fat adapted. They intermittently go into a state of ketosis. And if you do a ketone tolerance test, and I just made up that term because I like it and I think it, it, it describes actually what's going on. If you administer a bolus of ketones to a sedentary couch potato person, their ketones are elevated for a long period of time. Whereas if you administer a bolus of ketone esters or salt to an advanced athlete, they clear it very quickly from the blood. Um, So probably because they have more uh, monocarboxylic acid transporters and things like that. So, you know, you're an athlete. Uh, many people maybe listening to this are an athlete and uh, many, many athletes that I've, and I've communicated with hundreds, if not thousands are, you know, sometimes they get, have a problem getting into and sustaining a, a high state of ketosis and, uh, and come to find out, you know, when you administer ketones, they clear them from the blood pretty quick. Uh, so that, so there's a couple things going on that could affect ketone production. One is that some people have a pretty large increase in glucagon. Glucagon is not something we we measure a lot. We're measuring it now in our studies. Uh, we have a clinical trial and I'm going with Florida Medical Clinic and uh, and I measured you know it in myself. Typically what happens, especially in athletes, they'll have a really large suppression of the hormone insulin, but an elevation in glucagon and glucagon will increase gluconeogenesis. So some athletes will have a persistently elevated, uh, they won't have a reduction in glucose, I could say, mm-hmm. but their glucose levels will remain like 85, 90, maybe even hundred percent upon waking, which is something called the dawn effect we could talk about, but uh, that's largely uh, a result of an elevated, it could be an elevation of cortisol, but more likely contributor is an elevation of glucagon. So glucagon being sustained and elevated glucagon is the sort of counter regulatory hormone with insulin. So you lower insulin, you enhance fat oxidation, fat burning is off the charts, right? One thing that enhances fat oxidation, but also gluconeogenesis is glucagon, which is the counter regulatory hormone. And in athletes, uh, you know, it could be because they're just just really hard charging individuals and they just, they work out a lot or whatever. Uh, you tend to see higher levels of glucagon and the glucagon is actually making, you know, stored 
glycogen in the liver more available. Uh, if you're on a ketogenic diet and you start exercising, you could see a big burst in your blood glucose. And that's the glucagon and catecholamines actually liberating the glycogen. But you're also, you know, liberating and mobilizing fatty acids for fuels. But um, but I think the short answer is that the reduction in blood ketones that some athletes see is a consequence of higher ketone utilization and also um, an elevation of the counter-regulatory hormones like uh, glucagon and catecholamines. Right. You don't need to have uh, this high level of ketones because the glucose is still there to burn thanks to yep. the liberating of the fuel, high glucagon and so forth. And that brings up another question. Uh, I was speculating at times with all my experimentation relating to uh, diet, exercise, fasting and exercise, carbohydrate intake and recovery and so forth, that uh, if I'm doing a lot of fasting and carb restriction, it's technically a stressor to the body. And then I go do a sprint workout and I come home and instead of uh, slamming a high performance smoothie that has carbs, that has protein, I'm fasting for more hours, I'm getting a spike in uh, adrenaline, right? Because I got to get the energy from somewhere. And could this be contributory to uh, an excess amount of stress factors that affects my recovery? Oh, I forgot to throw in that I'm 56 years old doing these crazy sprint workouts and high jumping, uh, pretending I'm on the high school varsity team. And so that was one, I, I wondered what your opinion would be on that. And then maybe as a throw-in add-on question, um, could ketone supplements come to the rescue here in the recovery period uh, to provide me with this wonderful clean burning fuel source? Yeah. Well, first thing, you look great for 56. Wow. <laughs> You're like Mark, you and Mark Sisson, man. You guys are like defying, you know, the age, <laughs> the normal age. So 56 is a new 25, 30 or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, to, to, to get to your point, I think uh, being in a protracted state of carbohydrate restriction, low glucose, low insulin, high glucagon is probably not favorable, definitely not favorable for recovery. So um, what I like to do is just, I save all my carbohydrates for nighttime. So I have a big salad and uh, at nighttime, uh, I do eat at night, not right before bed, but I try to limit it, you know, two hours before, but I have, I always have berries. Like I cannot, I can count on one hand the number of times I had not had berries in the last year. So I have like wild blueberries and raspberries and things like that. And I mix that in with like this little keto pudding thing that I make at nighttime. So I typically have a little bit of fruit and vegetables and maybe upwards of like a hundred grams of carbs. And for me, uh, high fiber. And for me, that's enough, I think, to enhance recovery. I work out in the evening, typically late afternoon, evening. So uh, then we have dinner, then we take the dogs for a walk and we do kind of some more low intensity activity, if you want to call it that. And then at nighttime, uh, you know, in the early mid evening, you know, I'll have what will be the majority of my carbohydrates. But during the day, I have basically like no carbohydrate. So I think it's it can be advantageous for being fat adapted to um, to do the exercise in the context of low insulin and you know low glucose, and then you're really tapping into and mobilizing fat for fuel. Uh, it's good to train that way. Train low. Keep your body hungry mm -hmm. for glucose. So that's I mean, if I have to stay in one way you know, keep protein high or moderate, especially the older we get, the more protein 
we need protein at about you know 1.5 grams per kilogram to two grams per kilogram so 200 pound guy like mm. 200 grams of protein uh i think that's you know some people will say that's too high but um for athletes i think you really do need that to on a ketogenic diet a low carb diet to preserve and maintain that muscle and you know into that two grams per kilogram range if you want to build muscle for the average person if you're below 1.5 it's hard to build muscle hmm. uh, and, and hard to even sustain it you know if you're kind of a hard charging athlete so i think that's important to consider uh so back to the the weight loss question and the benefits of the ketogenic diet for weight loss you've said that the, the big ones are um suppression of appetite and then restriction of choice of foods and this seems to be such wonderful advice uh but it's not as sellable as saying hey you can go out and eat all the bacon and butter you want as long as you cut the carbs you're, you're going to lose weight and by the way take some of these pills too so i think we need to uh clarify this uh, with that comment you made reminded me of uh, dr herman Ponser coming on in his his recent book burn where he's saying look it, it's just it's just all about the calories and there's no, uh, in other words, I think he said every diet known to mankind is essentially a gimmick and it's just to, to get you to adhere to it and get your nutrition. And I think we, we need to, you know, sort this out from a big picture perspective, but uh, being able to suppress appetite and enjoy the heck out of your, your meals um, is, a, is a strong, you know, it's a strong vote uh, to, to, to something that's sustainable and will actually work. Yeah. So there's a lot of debate on this and we <laughs> like a lot of, you know, things firing on Twitter and things like that. So I, I go against the grain, if you will, uh, by the majority of the low carb field. And I do believe that calories matter. Right. Uh, and I believe that the benefit of low carb and ketogenic diets are kind of like twofold or threefold really. So when you take someone who's eating a standard American diet and really just not tracking anything and you put them on a low carb diet, then they start tracking at least something. They're tracking carbs. They're paying attention to labels. They're more cognizant of what they're eating. And that in and of itself is a behavioral modification that will translate to, uh, to some form of restriction usually. And it's a behavioral modification that will help assist uh, weight loss and maintain that weight loss if they continue with tracking. So tracking alone, and it could mm -hmm. be any diet, just tracking. Mm -hmm. So that, and then another level of, of enhancement of weight loss is actually tracking uh, a diet that is a low carb diet or a ketogenic diet. So uh, you could calorie restrict a high carbohydrate diet, you know, um, and you know calorie restrict temp you calorie restrict a keto diet or relative to a, a low uh, high carbohydrate diet uh the hormones are going to be quite different you know you will have a suppression of insulin if you restrict uh calorie restrict a high carbohydrate diet and you'll have a more robust decrease in insulin and glucose and probably elevation of glucagon and some other hormones that we're measuring now the jury's still out no one really has done an unambiguously perfect study on this 
But generally what you see is that like a higher protein, like high protein, low carb, high fat diet has a greater appetite suppressing effect through changing hormones, various hormones in the body, but probably resulting to some extent by reducing glycemic variability. There is no doubt in my mind that you could take two diets, a high carb diet and a low carb diet, and then calorie restrict it, you're going to see much tighter reduction in glycemic variability with the low carb diet. And I think that, you know, at least in type two diabetics, I don't know why it wouldn't happen in normal healthy people, but in type two diabetics, that typically translates to uh, reduction in uh, appetite. You know, there's an appetite suppressing effect and better cognitive, you know, effects and more energy and things like that. Uh, the studies on this are not that great, but hmm. that's, that's the general consensus, although many people would debate that with me. <laughs> so I'm just throwing uh, it. That's surprising that there's not a lot of studies on it. And what would be the... Uh, a lot of the, good studies. A lot of, yeah. There's not a whole lot of good studies that clamp calories clamp calories. So you have very high attention to, you know, oversight over calorie intake with a low carb diet versus a high carb diet and to look at hormones and appetite regulation and a variety of other things. But the general consensus is that low carb diets have a mild advantage over, over that. And, uh, and that's due to a wide variety. I do think that like my opinion is that a low carb diet is, uh, and I don't want to put it in a negative context. It's, uh, it's some people, the low carb diet is hypo palatable and it reduces the hedonic response to eating. So I'm comfortable with saying that, that statement, when you eliminate the combination of sugar and carbohydrates, it's not triggering that dopamine response. You just do not want to eat as much of a low carbohydrate diet as you would with a high carbohydrate diet. And that in and of itself will reduce total calories over time and improve your metabolic health, the many metabolic parameters. So that's a really important thing. There's many people in low carb community will just kind of shrug that off and it's like, yeah, that may happen. But the big thing is that it's the hormones, you know, that you're suppressing the hormone insulin, which happens to a, a greater extent with low carbohydrate diets, at least acutely in response to a meal. The high carb camp may say, well, you have to look at insulin over a 24 hour period, not just right after a meal, mm. you know, and I think, you know, we don't have continuous insulin monitors and then we could do that. So we just have fasting insulin. Uh, and I'll have to say that when I did a higher carbohydrate diet and then I measured my fasting insulin, it really wasn't, uh, much different, you know, if I controlled for calories, uh, although my insulin would spike quite high right after a, uh, a high carb meal. And that's, that's most certainly shutting off the fat burning process. So I think that's probably not favorable, but what I would feel if I eat, you know, carbohydrates in the form of bread or pasta or starches or sugar is that I feel great, you know, right after the meal, but about an hour to two hours <laughs> after I would have that dip, I would get a little bit shaky and it would just screw up my whole mental flow mm. and low carb diets, ketogenic diets completely abolish that postprandial dip. 
And uh, that pays big dividends if you're you need a four or five hour stretch to work on a grant or you're doing something that involves a lot of cognitive, you know, capacity <laughs> over time. So, so I've learned to just accept this diet, not only study it in my research, but actually transition to actually following the very thing that I'm studying myself. Hey, how about that? That's yeah. a, that, that'll help you get tenure. Look at this guy. He's walking his talk here. <laughs> I, uh, I think it helps for sure. Yeah. Um, if the listeners don't know about your extreme athletic, uh, achievements and, and devotion, I think we should, we should touch on that a little bit. And, uh, in the meanwhile, you, you can tell us, tell us about your, your deadlifting feat that you did coming off of a extended fast, I guess, to, um, again, walk your talk and, and, uh, show up on the, on the tenure track. But, um, I'm also wondering if there's, uh, an additional variable relating to, your training regimen when it comes to cracking that code about dropping excess body fat. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the deadlift thing, yeah, about like 10 years ago, I became very interested in this idea of fasting and changing, you know, brain energy metabolism. So after a uh, seven-day fast, uh, I tested <laughs> my strength, you know, not with a brutal long workout, but just, you know, uh, and I warmed up, of course, and just you know, deadlifted 500 for 10 and then uh, six plates for another set. So, but that was within like what I was used to doing. And I found that it didn't feel any, uh, it didn't feel any heavier after, you know, fasting for, for seven days. Uh, Not to say I could, you know, keep doing that workout for a whole hour or two. It was just a test for my overall strength. Uh, So I found that to be really unexpected. Uh, and I, I went into it thinking, you know, I was warming up and then 135, oh, well, it's easy, 225, 315, <laughs> 405, and then five plates. And then it's just like I just kept going with the reps. And it was just, wow, that this is this is remarkable. I've not eaten anything for seven days and it didn't feel that much heavier. Uh so not maybe not everybody would have that experience, but a lot do because a lot have heard that and you know kind of fasted and and nowadays I do fasting for three days, maybe every quarter. Hmm. And I do like a deadlift test at the end and can do, you know, the same amount. So um that, you know, that's that's pretty important. I, I don't think that fasting is, you know, an ideal tool for putting on muscle, but it just goes to show you that the body can adapt quite well. And I do think that I, I, I adapted well to that seven day fasting protocol because I had been in a state of ketosis for a year or two prior to attempting that. So, uh, I think if you're on a high carb diet, you're a high carb athlete, and then you just completely stop eating your body was running on glucose and you're going to have a painful transition into that prolonged fasting state. Whereas it was almost effortless. The third day was a little bit hard, you know, uh, but it was more of a behavioral thing. I just enjoyed the process of eating. Um, mm. But my blood work looked great. You know, I did blood work. I did. I tested a bunch of things and uh, and continued to do really demanding week of writing grants and teaching and things like that. And everything went super smooth. If anything, I was a lot more productive because I didn't have to prepare meals, clean up, you know, eat the meals. So it saved me a lot of time during that week. So now I, I do it three times, uh, three to four times a year. I do these three day fasts and I just sort of task load myself, uh, to read a lot of papers and get a lot of, you know, office work done. I don't task myself with a lot of physical activity Mm. during that time because 
fasting is, I think of it nowadays as kind of rest, reset, transition the body, and then, you know, ease back into eating and then get back into training once I get back into eating. But I will test my strength at the end of it. And I do low, low cardio, low impact stuff during the actual fast to transition into a, a greater degree of ketosis during the actual fast. So your blood ketone levels, I'm sure, are rising up to be pretty high, especially at the end of three days. But uh, is your glucose pretty stable due to, in, in part, due to your athletic commitment and your your good metabolic function? Yeah, the glucose will typically, uh, by the second day, get down into the mid to high 60s. And then the low 60s by the third day, that has been pretty consistent with the last couple three-day fasts. And I mean, to get back to that point of beta-hydroxybutyrate, my blood ketone levels will, you know, on a normal day, they just stay at about one millimolar, but in the fasting state, they don't pop up to three, four, five. They actually stay around like two or 2.5 or something like that. So they don't shoot up very high at all. And in the morning, there might be 0.5 or even one in a three-day fasting state. So this is what I see. But what I also see is that my breath ketones, so Readout Health makes an FDA approved device called the Biosense Meter. And uh, I just, uh, I'm about to do a, a blog on it. Actually, it had, it was in our, our last newsletter description of the Biosense. So the Biosense Meter is really a better, in the context of a calorie restriction or fasting state, is a better indicator of your fat burning and your state of ketosis, your breath ketones. I originally got interested in breath ketones because breath ketones correlated with seizure control. But the more, and I've pricked my finger thousands of times measuring blood ketones, and I would see during activity, they would go down, like after a walk when they should be going up. I should be <laughs> producing ketones, but I was using them as fuel. But my breath ketones would go up and I would smell it on my breath and I could just feel I was in a high state of ketosis, but it wasn't showing on the blood meter. And, uh, and the more I looked into this, I realized, you know, the breath ketones in the state of fasting or calorie restriction is a much more fulfilling and accurate <laughs> assessment. And now the device is quantitative because it gives you a number which correlates. Um, so the breath ketone measurements is actually what I prefer during fasting or if I'm trying doing a weight loss. Uh, and if you're on a eucaloric diet, which means your calories, you know, maintenance level calories. The, the blood ketones and the breath ketones correlate well. So there's breath ketones are measured in ACEs, like levels of acetone, like 10 ACEs, ACEs will correlate to one millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate. Mm. And that's, that's very consistent with a eucaloric maintenance ketogenic diet. But once you start fasting, the breath ketones climb and climb and climb, and then the blood ketones kind of stay where they're at or they don't go anywhere. And uh, I knew that that was not, you know, that's not happening. Uh, I know that I knew I was in a state of higher state of ketosis, but I was just using more ketones for energy because I had, I was in a calorie deficit state. So I'm just, you know, pulling more ketones out of the blood, if you will, mm. using them for energy. Whereas I was blowing off mm. acetone, the acetone that I'm, I could taste it is basically those carbons are all carbons from body fat. <laughs> so that's the way I think about it. It's like when you're in a, you can just taste it, you can smell it. You're like in a state of ketosis and, and that acetone is pure fat <laughs> kind of, you're blowing pure fat out of the body. 
So uh, I could feel it, but it wasn't showing on the blood ketone meter. So I'm a big fan. Uh, it took me a while to warm up to using this breath ketone device. And I used hmm. a couple before I settled on the Biosense. But uh, now I'm interested in actually doing some research to back up some of these observations. You're our guy, just researching everything, testing everything. Yeah. Uh, I got to say, Dom, you, you look good yourself. I, I mean, you, you're a, for an academic, you're a big, strong guy, but um, you have lost quite a bit of muscle mass on purpose uh, and, and, and trimmed down. You look like a different person, but tell us about that journey and how you feel today at a, um, a little more uh, carrying around a little less muscle. Yeah, yeah. I lost probably 10 years ago at this time, uh, 2011. I was just looking at a picture. It was right about 235. So right now I'm 216. And I have to say that I do feel better just being a little late. I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm over six foot, like six foot. So I'm kind of a tall and maybe somewhat lanky guy, but uh, I have a pretty big frame. And uh, I do notice I become more interested in my biomarkers of health, like blood pressure, triglycerides, hemoglobin mm -hmm. A1C. These are things that I like compete against myself to try to improve these numbers because I'm thinking about longevity. And uh, I try to maintain a certain level of strength in the basic compound movements. And I think that's important for longevity because muscle is like, you know, I talk about like muscle currency. So the more it's, it's really good to have a strength reserve and a muscle reserve. So I make sure that I can like deadlift three times my body weight and bench a certain amount and things like that. So I can't move the amount of weight that I did when I was heavier, of course, but I feel like I can move a certain percentage of my body weight better and do it for more reps than I could when I was heavier. So I mm. think, and also, uh, I'm a big fan of like body weight movements. Um, so I took a year off and didn't lift any weights, but was doing chin-ups and dips and a variety of different ways for push-ups and things like that. So uh, I would say about half of my workout routine is actually using my body weight for, I do weighted chin-ups, weighted dips, push-ups, mm. things like that. And then I do deadlifts and squats, but that pretty much encompasses all my workout. And I just work out with weights about twice a week and it's real quick, like 20 minutes, maybe twice a week. And then in between those pretty, pretty hardcore workouts, uh, you're walking the dogs and just filling in with uh, minor body weight things or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I do a lot of work around the house too. We live on mm -hmm. a farm here and we made a little Island out in our lake. And this weekend <laughs> I was literally pulling out the uh, cattails and it was like, it was, I told my wife, it was like deadlifting for three to four hours, pulling the cattails off and then walking up the incline of the the island and then like putting them on the top. And I was just doing that. And I was like completely exhausted. It was like the biggest work. So I do stuff like that. We have a lot of land. We have cows on the land and there's a lot of fence, like about two, almost two miles of fence. And there's always trees falling down and knocking the fence down. So I'm out there with a chainsaw, cutting stuff up, you know, repairing the fence, doing it's like usually about 15, 20 hours a week, just doing that. And that kind of keeps me in shape. And I do walk the dogs every day, sometimes twice a day. And then I squeeze in two weightlifting workouts a week to just keep that strength maintenance. The farm life for Dom D'Agostino. Thank you so much for all these <laughs> insights. It was a, a wild journey through the, the world of ketones and more. Uh, where can people connect further with you? 
Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, ketonutrition.org. So all one word, ketonutrition.org. Check out our blog, which hits many topics, everything from the ketogenic diet for cancer. We have guest writers, for example, registered dietitians that work with patients that you know, have their links to their services there, but we delve into many topics that we discussed here, but in a much deeper way in the blog and sign up for our newsletter too. In the newsletter, I usually uh, tell people about what I'm doing, you know, and then a month or two later, I'll do a blog about it or something like that. So our newsletter, our products that we like, Mm. uh, experiments that I'm doing, you know, and usually an important research topic that is sort of you know, new research that's coming out, we'll do, we'll highlight it in the, uh, the newsletter. Fantastic. Thank you, Dom. Thank you, listeners. That's a wrap. Da, 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 da. Hey, listeners, I discovered an awesome new electrolyte and triple enzyme powdered drink that's going to knock your socks off. It's called Bala Enzyme. And it comes in a convenient little pouch of bright orange powder that you pour into water for the ultimate electrolyte and antioxidant drink. It's simple, convenient, and yes, the orange tint comes from a potent serving of turmeric along with a clean and diverse assortment of enzymes and electrolytes and a perfect taste that's not fake or too sweet. Bala was created by husband and wife doctors to help their patients recover from inflammation, improve hydration, speed up recovery, even relieve joint pain, improve digestion, and boost immunity. I love their incredible devotion to product quality. There's a lot of research behind it, and I just sprinkle this packet into ice water, and it's so easy to stay hydrated because you absolutely enjoy the taste of the drink. Get their convenient little packets. They even designed it with the uh, the tear half-torn so it's easy to open into the water. I love what they think of. And it comes in three exciting flavors, pineapple, lime, and berry. It's so potent, it might stain your fingers if you get it on your fingers. And yes, that's a good thing for a serving of turmeric that's that potent. It's also sugar-free, zero-carb, and promoting of the three R's. Rehydrate, relieve, and revive. Please visit balaenzyme.com, B-A-L-A-E-N-Z-Y-M-E. And of course, there's a special deal for BRAD podcast listeners. 30% off your first order. Just use the code BRAD30 at balaenzyme.com. Thank you for listening to the show. I love sharing the experience with you and greatly appreciate your support. Please email podcast at bradventures.com with feedback, suggestions, and questions for the Q&A shows. Subscribe to our email list at bradkerns.com for a weekly blast about the published episodes and a wonderful bi-monthly newsletter edition with informative articles and practical tips for all aspects of healthy living. You can also download several awesome free ebooks when you subscribe to the email list. And if you could go to the trouble to leave a five or five star review with Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to the shows, that would be super incredibly awesome. It helps raise the profile of the BRAD podcast and attract new listeners. And did you know that you can share a show with a friend or loved one by just hitting a few buttons in your player and firing off a text message? My awesome podcast player called Overcast allows you to actually record a soundbite excerpt from the episode you're listening to and fire it off with a quick text message. Thank you so much for spreading the word. And remember, be rad.